January, this is before the, the wall came down, uh, uh, we read about Albania in uh, our missions class, and Albania at that time, this is in the uh, early 80s, proudly affirmed that it was the first atheistic country. Uh, that, that was its official position. And so to see the fact that the church is growing and, uh, and thriving uh, points not only to the amazing work of God, but also to the hunger that the human soul has for fellowship and communion with God. So uh, with that in mind, let's, let's go to prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work around the world in the hearts of men and women. Uh, Lord God, bringing uh, to them through uh, the faithful uh, workers and servants of yours in whom you have called out of darkness into your marvelous light to share the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, that there are uh, hearts, Father, that are, that are there and ready to receive the word uh, that is richly implanted, the word of good news that there is salvation by grace through faith in Christ. We pray, Lord God, for uh, ourselves that we would be faithful to be proclaimers and practitioners of your gospel, that we would not merely be hearers of the word but doers as well, that our conduct as well as our speech would bear witness and give glory to you as our God and Father, our Lord and Savior, our spirit and, and giver of life that in all things you would be magnified and glorified, and that we would, by our humble service for you, love our neighbor in, in ways, O oh Lord God, that would communicate your truth, your beauty, your grace, your justice, your mercy in calling us to yourselves. We thank you, Father, that we have the privilege of gathering this morning in your name, and we pray for the work of your Spirit now, uh, in having cleansed our hearts, reminding us that our hearts have been made pure by our obedience to the truth, that we are yours. And Father, we ask now for your spirit to speak to us through your word, that we might know you more and more. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I'm sure you'll be happy to know that this is the, uh, this is the last uh, that will be in this one section of First Peter before we move on. Uh, into the rest of the letter, and we come to a very pivotal point in Peter's letter uh, here in verses 11 and 12. Um, not only they, they are a hinge between what he has said uh, in the first two chapters and what he'll say in the remaining three. So be, from this point on, starting with verse 11 and verse 12 of 1 Peter 2, Peter will begin to lay out how we are to behave as those whom God has called out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he has made the case very strongly for God's grace, God's mercy in calling a people to himself. These Gentiles, these non-Jews who were born outside the covenant that God made with Abraham and then later with, uh, with Israel... But they now, we among them, because many of us, I'm sure, were not born into a Jewish home or under that covenant. As Gentiles, we have been brought into a relationship with Christ, the church expanding to include both Jew and the Gentile. And so we have in this verse, or verse this morning some instruction in a general sense that Peter will lay out more specifically as you get into uh, the rest of chapter 2 and on into chapter 3. 
So generally speaking, he wants, to, uh, he wants us to abstain from bad behavior and to pursue and practice good behavior. And then, as you see in verse 13 in chapter 2, if you've been reading through 1 Peter, you'll see he begins to expand that to what it means to be a good citizen, what it means to be a good servant, what it means to be a good wife, a good husband, and, and so forth. And so I'm reminded uh, as I read um, these verses... Uh, maybe you, you, as a, you can remember this when you were growing up as a kid or as a parent, you have done this. My, uh, my mother uh, had an aunt and uncle who were, very, uh, who were elderly. And uh, I remember uh, very clearly, I was maybe seven or eight years old. My brother is a little bit older than I am. And we were driving to, into the Bronx to visit them from Long Island. And on the way there... We got the talk. Not the talk that you're thinking of, but the talk. How we were going to a home that was, these, uh, her aunt and uncle had no children, so their home was not kid-proof. They had lots of little expensive Hummel figurines, these little porcelain things. They had lots of nice things. So we were told very clearly very sternly and very firmly that we needed to be on our best behavior, that we didn't touch anything, that we didn't horse around. There was no horseplay allowed, no wrestling. We were to use our best manners, say please and thank you and no thank you and yes thank you and all of that. What, I, what we didn't realize is after the, getting this talk and then you know, we, we did, we, my brother and I were on our best behavior. The fun part of that, unbeknownst to my parents at the time, until we told them when we got home, is that when we said goodbye to uh, Uncle Philip and, and Aunt uh, Daphne, uh, they would each, unbeknownst to the other, they'd each slip us a dollar bill. <laughs> so it was like, there was a great incentive. Every time we went back to this home, we were like, Anthony, <laughs> we're going to make a couple of bucks. So, <laughs> so we would be in our best behavior. There's a lot of, I mentioned that story because there's a lot of similarity between the instructions that my mother gave to my brother and me and the instructions that Peter gives to his readers. He wants his readers, much in the same way that my mother and father wanted my brother and I, he wants his readers to be on their best behavior, to conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of those whom God has called out of darkness into his marvelous light. The, the, there's a strong encouragement to avoid bad behavior and an equally strong encouragement to pursue and practice good behavior. And as I said uh, you know, last week and just as we wrap up this one section, we've been moving slowly through this section because it's the high point of Peter's letter. It's the, the point at which he has brought us, if you will, to the mountaintop. He's told us the good news about what God has done for us in Christ. And now he's going to lay out the implications of that good news in terms of how we are to, to live and, and practice those very things. So his instructions then are, are grounded in the fact that having trusted in Christ, the following things are true. That we have purified our souls uh, by obedience to the truth. We are being built up by God into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to him through Jesus Christ. That we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That we are sojourners and exiles 
in our own culture, though we may not have left geographically the area in which we live, morally, ethically, and by, on the verse, uh, basis of our values, we are sojourners and exiles. We are not part of the surrounding culture. Uh, and then having caused us to be born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ, God has given us the church to keep, help us keep Jesus at the center of everything we do. And that as the center of everything we do, Jesus then is the cornerstone of our worship. He is the source of our identity and he is the focus of our mission. And our mission, as Peter tells us, beginning in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, our mission is to glorify God through particular kinds of conduct. That we are to behave like holy people. That our mission is to worship God by practicing what Jesus preaches. We are called to show God the, the greatest respect by behaving like holy people. That by making us a holy priesthood, God has made us of a particular type of person so that holy people honor God by living holy lives. So you want to look at it in terms of very simple terms. Holy people honor God by avoiding bad behavior. And on the other hand, holy people honor God by practicing good behavior. So verse 11, Peter lays out. He says, abstain. Beloved, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Right away we have a problem. Not only are we soldiers and exiles, which I'll explain in just a moment, but Peter uses a word that is not very popular in today's culture. The word abstain, the avoid, keep away from, don't do it. We, we seem, we not seem, but we are living in a time when it seems there is no behavior that is avoidable. That there is no behavior at which one can point to and say, you ought not do that. We live in a time when there is no behavior which is deemed off limits or unholy. Everything is permissible, it seems. But Peter says what makes the separation between those who have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of God in Jesus Christ is that we are empowered by his Holy Spirit to abstain from certain practices, certain ideas, certain ways of thinking, certain ways of behaving. And when Peter says, I urge you, he is not merely making a suggestion. He's not saying, you know, brothers and sisters, I really think it would be a good idea if maybe you would consider, if it's not too much trouble, not doing these things. When we lived in North Dakota, we lived in the, and he spent any time in the upper Midwest, you know that people in the Midwest tend to speak in elliptical terms. They never come out and tell you exactly what they want you to do or what they're thinking because they don't want to offend. And so they speak in very roundabout terms. You know, you might want to think about doing this or you might want to think about not doing this. Peter doesn't say it that way. He says, I urge you to abstain. Don't do it. Don't do these practices. And that command that he issues is based on two things. First, that our commitment to obey Christ above all makes us sojourners and exiles from our culture. It makes this line of demarcation. And that secondly, trusting in Jesus puts us on the front lines of a spiritual battle in which, according to what Paul says in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So you may be uncomfortable with that kind of language, but Peter says, uncomfortable or not, that is the reality that every follower of Jesus Christ is confronted with by virtue of having been brought into relationship with God through the finished work of Christ. That we are sojourners and exiles. We are traveling through this culture, exiled by the very fact that we have been set apart by God to live in a particular way by faith in Christ and there is a, a spiritual war going on for our soul. We are called to live by a different set of values, our morals and our ethics. The things that we think and believe to be right and wrong are clear. And that's another thing that makes us exiles in our culture. We, we live in a time when people are uncomfortable with certainty. They are not comfortable thinking, dealing with absolutes. As if there is, so you, you get things like, well, that's your truth. And if you can live out your truth, more power to you. My truth is this. That's a, that's a clear line of demarcation because the Bible doesn't say there are versions of the truth that are equally valid. But there is the one truth. There is the one person who embodies truth, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes people uncomfortable when we talk in very clear terms about there are certain kinds of behavior that are good and right and honorable and others that are bad and wrong and dishonorable. Every parent, however, understands very clearly the necessity to teach their children a clear line between right and wrong. And what Peter is simply saying is by urging us to abstain from bad behavior, he is saying, understand that the way you used to behave was part of an immature lifestyle that was not based on a grown-up understanding of the way the world works. Because our former way of life more or less revolved around us and our desires and what we wanted to do. He says, now that you have come into a relationship with Christ, you're no longer living for yourself, but you're living for Christ. And living for Christ now obligates you not only to honor him, but to pay strict attention to how you treat others who belong to Jesus, as well as those who have not yet come to faith in Christ, who are watching your life, listening to your words, and taking notes on whether or not what you say and you believe is actually influencing the way that you live. And so he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And when we hear that term, I think we, we tend to sort of step back and think, well, obviously Peter is really thinking here about sins like lust and a variety of sexual sins, and that's part of that phrase. But there's a lot more that goes into those passions of the flesh. He's talked about some of these as early on in the chapter, all malice, all hypocrisy, envy, slander, those are passions of the flesh. The, the, the reactive part of us, the, the, the part of us that springs to our own defense whenever we hear a criticism or we feel threatened by some circumstance or some situation, we, respond, we react rather than respond. 
you may not necessarily have a, a problem with lust or pornography, but you may have a problem with pride. You may have a problem with anger or idolatry. You may elevate status or money or a job or security or comfort above a commitment to, to Christ. You may have a problem with gossip or greed or gluttony, lying or even drunkenness. These are the things that Peter would say would typify and mark those who are immature in their understanding of what God requires. The passions of the flesh, in other words, or any kinds of desires that lead to behavior that is dishonorable toward God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and bring shame to the church, as well as to one's own family. And I can remember as a, as a kid, and maybe you, in your home life, you were like this, I was, I was what you would call a good kid growing up. I really was. I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't do drugs. I hardly swore, unless I was really angry. But I was a good kid. Why? Because I didn't want to bring shame to my parents. I didn't, want, I didn't want them to get a phone call from either the school principal or Officer Moriarty that I had done something wrong. So I was a good Pharisee, but I wasn't necessarily a good Christian. So Peter is simply saying, we need to behave in a particular way that brings honor to God, not in a sense of trying to please him, but because we understand the price that was paid for our salvation. These passions, say Peter, wage war against the soul because, well, in the words of the, the Puritan John Bunyan, the greatness of the soul is proven by the greatness of the price paid for it to make it an heir of glory, which is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He, we've talked about this in 1 Peter 1.18. So the greatness of the soul is proven by the greatness of the price paid for it to make it an heir of glory. He goes on to say that the soul has been purchased by a price that the Son and wisdom of God thought appropriate to pay for its redemption. What a thing then must be the soul. You must confess it is of great value. So your soul, that part of you, that spiritual element of you that bears the very mark and stamp and image of God, that is the thing that God deemed valuable enough and precious enough to redeem with the precious blood of his Son. In the Bible, when it uses the word soul, it refers to the, the whole person, that spiritual component of who we are. So there is a sense in which soul and spirit are interchangeable terms in the Bible. And our soul's flesh spirit is that part of us which then controls what we do. Our heart may be the seat of our affections. Our heart may be the center of our emotions. But it's the soul, the spirit that drives the things that we do, makes those decisions in terms of how we ought to respond. The other thing about the soul, the spirit, is that, that it's the one thing that separates us from every other living creature in creation. Think about, it. you go back to Genesis 2, it's the soul, the spirit, that bears the very image of God. Genesis 2.7 the Bible says that after forming Adam from the dust of the ground, the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground. And what did he do? 
He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living creature, literally a living soul, a living spirit. The only time that phrase, breath of life, is used is when it is used of God creating Adam from the dust of the ground. Human life consists of a body and breath. That's why we, when we die, we're awaiting a resurrection of the body because our soul, our spirit may be in paradise with God, but we're waiting for the reunion with our body. It's the thing that separates Christianity from most other religions. It's not all religions. Is that we are, we, are, we are spirit and body. We are breath and body. We are made of the dust from the ground, but we are made alive by the breath of God. And while both animals and human beings are called living creatures, Adam, representing all of humanity, is the only creature into whom God breathed his breath. That's why Peter is so urgent to urge us to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul. Because that's the thing that bears the imprint of our maker. It's the thing he breathed into us that makes us like him. It's what he's imparted to us. And bear in mind that this is Peter writing this. The man who nearly drowned because his faith failed when he was walking on the water toward Jesus. This is the man who swore that he would die with Jesus and yet denied him three times. So this is a man who knows the dark night of the soul. This is the man who knows what it feels like to walk in, to wander in darkness until by the grace of God he is gripped by the Lord Jesus Christ and he is pulled out of darkness into his light, being restored at the end of John's gospel. So you may wander at times in that moment of that twilight between Righteousness and unrighteousness. And you may wonder, is God really for you? Peter says, yes, because he has breathed his spirit into you. He has paid for your soul with the blood of his son. He's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you wander off. He's not going to let you wander away. He's going to pull you back. In the same way that he pulled you out of darkness when you didn't know him, he will continue to lead you and to draw you into the light because you do know him. Peter was there as well when Jesus uttered the famous line, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Think about that. What would you give in exchange for your eternal destiny with Christ? What will you give in exchange for everlasting life? compared to the temporary passions of the flesh that satisfy for a moment like cotton candy. And then it's gone, leaving you with a taste not for more righteousness, but for more unrighteousness. When in fact Jesus says, if you come to me, I give you living water such that you will never thirst again, except for the water that I give you, except for the bread that I feed you with, except for the fellowship that leads you further and further into the light, further and further into maturity, further and further into the grace and knowledge of who I am and of your preciousness to me by virtue of the fact that I have shed my blood for you. We have been chosen by God to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. 
We are no longer children of the darkness. We are no longer beholden to the flesh. And this is why I think Peter and Paul were, had to, at some point, communicated with one another. Because I hear echoes, and we're going to put it on the screen in just a moment here. You hear echoes of what Paul says in Romans 8. When he writes in Romans 8, 5 to 11, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Pretty desperate state, but then he turns the corner. You, however, are not in the flesh. But in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who dwells in you. The moment we trust in Christ, our flesh dies. That part of us that lived in disobedience to the rule and authority of God. That part that was enslaved to sin. We sang about it. The chains are gone. We are no longer beholden to those passions of the flesh but are now beholden to the passion of Christ and of his spirit so in the place of a that old dead flesh is a new heart one that is inclined to obey God and his word one that is inclined to listen to the spirit one that is inclined to avoid the passions of the flesh and go full steam into the pleasures of God by learning to serve and to obey Christ. But therein lies the problem. Because just because we have come to Christ, the passions of the flesh, they don't, there's no ceasefire. They don't stop waging war against our soul. It's not like the flesh, that part of us that is disobedient to God, it's not like our flesh says to us, oh, well, I see now uh, you become a Christian. I suppose uh, the war is over. No use now in trying to get you to behave badly. You, you obviously are immune to temptation. Not exactly. Because the flesh is a sore loser. The Christian life isn't like the Super Bowl. Like, you know, you watch the Super Bowl, the game ends. Right? The losing team congratulates the winner, walks off the field. Imagine, however, how foolish it would have been if when the game ended, the Eagles stayed on the field and insisted that the Kansas City Chiefs stay on the field and play them until the Eagles won. Or, to show my international reach here, in another football match, if France had insisted, Argentina, stay on the pitch because we want to take more penalty kicks until we beat you. That's the flesh. It doesn't give up. It's a bad loser. It does not leave the stage. It's waging war against us. 
Because our soul is as precious to it as it is to God. And because it doesn't give up, Peter urges us to avoid and to keep on avoiding every kind of passion. So that raises a question. How do you do that? <laughs> How do you avoid the passions of the flesh? Well, the, the answer is that you remember what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. You remember that he caused you to be born again through, to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. You remember Peter's instructions about preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, setting your hope fully on the grace to be revealed at the coming of Christ. To remember that we call on God as a father who impartially judges everyone's work. We remember that we have been ransomed from a futile way of life by the precious, precious blood of Christ. That we have purified our souls through obedience to the truth. That we have been born again through a living and abiding word of God. That we are living stones God is building up into a spiritual house. That whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Now, I grant you, that's a lot to remember. Particularly in the heat of the moment. In the heat of the temptation. To, to behave badly. So, I have a very simple solution. And it's one that combines all of those remembrances into a single question, which I call the Schrute question. Those of you who ever watched the television show The Office know that there was a character in that show called Dwight Schrute. Dwight Schrute insisted that he was the assistant regional manager, and he kept being reminded by Michael Scott, who was a regional manager, you are the assistant to the regional manager. And a cold open to one of the episodes of the show, Michael asks Dwight, what was the most inspirational thing I ever said to you? And Dwight said, don't be an idiot. Changed my life. And then they cut because the show was filmed in a, a documentary style about the life of people in, in this paper company in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And so after Dwight says this to Michael, you see him, he's talking off camera to a producer. And he says, whenever I'm about to do something, I think, would an idiot do that? And if they would, I do not do that thing. Now, I modified that. Whenever I'm about to do something, I think, would someone who follows Jesus Christ do that? And if, they, and if the answer is no, I do not do that thing. Or put it this way, is what I'm about to do something that would be acceptable to God? And if the answer is no, I do not do that thing. So how do you avoid falling into and obeying a, spirit, a passion that wages war against your soul? You ask yourself the question, is what I'm being tempted to do something that God would find acceptable? And if the answer is no, don't do that thing. Because the, the ability to ask that question and the ability to resist the temptation to do and act badly comes from the Holy Spirit, who applies the work of Christ in that moment. So holy people honor God by avoiding bad behavior, by asking that very simple question, is what I'm about to do, is what I'm about to think something that God would find acceptable? 
You know, it's perfectly acceptable in a situation if you find yourself feeling angry. You're in a conversation. You're feeling very defensive. A good way to handle that is just to simply say, you know what? I am, I am really uncomfortable right now, and I am afraid that if this conversation persists, I'm going to say and do something we will both regret. So I'm just going to step out for a moment, and, and I'm going to think this through, and I'll come back when I'm calmer, and I will give you a response. Fair enough? In other words, there's the event that happens, and then there's our immediate response to it. Peter says, put something in the middle. A, C, put B in the middle. A timeout, if you will, mentally that says, boy, I'm really, I don't, I'm, this situation makes me uncomfortable. I need to take a time, I need to step back from this. I need to think this through. Because I'm not sure if engaging in this or saying what I'm about to say is honorable to God as well as going to be edifying to the person I'm talking with or who's talking with me. That's a way of abstaining from the passions of the flesh by sublimating that for the moment, stepping back, maybe getting counsel, praying for sure, but responding, not reacting. Holy people honor God by avoiding bad behavior. They honor God by practicing good behavior. I mentioned sojourners and aliens. Some of you know that when we, we spent 10 years living in Canada, uh, and after a year or so, we became what was known as landed immigrants with permanent resident status, which meant that we could, uh, I, we could work, we could pay our taxes, yay. Right? Our kids could go to school. We could vote in, uh, in a local municipal elections. We couldn't vote in a federal election because we weren't full citizens. At the same time, we had to obey all the laws of Canada. I mean, we participated in the healthcare system, all of that. We also had to obey the laws of Canada because if I broke a law, if I committed a crime in Canada, I would be prosecuted in Canada, and then they would say, get out. <laughs> you need to leave. They would deport me along with my whole family. So there is a sense in which as sojourners and exiles, Peter is saying, be on your best behavior. That simply because you now follow Christ, we are not exempt from the laws of the, surround, of the government and the civil authorities. We just cannot do anything that we please and say, well, I'm a, I belong to Jesus and I can do what I want. No, 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 no. You need to keep your conduct honorable, he says, among the Gentiles. So that they will see your good works, he says, and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's interesting. There is an expression, those of you who follow politics know that there's an expression that says, all politics is local. You can change that in the context here and say, all evangelism is local. Peter is not telling his readers, you need to write a petition to the Roman government and say, hey, ease off on the persecution. He's not, telling, he's not telling them to go on a, a letter-writing campaign to close down the pagan temples. He's telling them, look at your neighbor. Live such a good life in the presence of your neighbor that they will glorify God on the day of visitation. And what does he mean by that? There are two schools of thought on that. 
One says that Peter is thinking of the day of judgment. So that on the day of judgment, those who don't believe in Jesus will, will recognize that everything that believers did was good and true and right. And they will glorify God the way Paul says in Philippians 2. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That may be what Peter has in mind. But I think he has something else in mind. Another school of thought says, in light of the Great Commission, where Jesus tells us to go out all the nations... Literally, Gentiles. In light of Acts 13, where Paul and Barnabas uh, first go to the, the synagogue in Antioch and are, are thrown out, and he says in Acts 13, well, since you won't listen to the gospel, we're going to go to the Gentiles. You see that there. And it's also from Isaiah 49.6. Where speaking of Israel, God speaks to the prophet and says, I'll make you a light for the nations, literally Gentiles. The ethne is the, the word in the Septuagint. That my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Paul quotes that same text in Acts 13. And we're told in verse 38 of Acts 13, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the, the word of the Lord. As many as were pointed to eternal life believed. Ephesians 2 says the same thing. Paul reminds the Gentile believers there that once they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but now have been grafted in. In Philippians 2, Paul is telling the Gentiles there that they are to work out their own salvation. Not necessarily, as one translation says, holding on to the word of life for dear life, but holding out the word of life. That others may see and others may know. So in other words, we live honorable lives as witnesses to the grace, the mercy, and the loving kindness of God. That no matter how badly we are treated, which is why Peter will then say later on in chapter 21, Christ suffered setting us an example. Which is why he'll say no matter how badly others will treat us. We shouldn't want the condemnation of our unsaved neighbor or family member or co-worker. Because ultimately, we do not know what effect our behavior, our words, our conduct will have upon them. One thing is certain. Our conduct, our behavior, ought not to be the reason they turn from Christ our behavior, our conduct ought to be the reason they turn to Jesus and repent and are saved. Yep, some will curse us. Some will reject us. And they will, by doing so, seal their fate for judgment day. But not everyone will. This parable of the sower, some seed did fall on good soil. So we have a, a part to play, if you will, in the renewal of sleepy saints, in the revival of those who have strayed from the faith, as well as the awakening of those who have never heard. You have, I'm sure, if you haven't, you haven't been paying attention to some of the reports, I'm sure you, you're aware of the revival that's taking place at Asbury University, which is spread to other universities in that area. Started with a chapel service on February 8th. 
still ongoing. They're going to make some changes because they've been going 24 hours a day. And you think in terms of revival, revival is what happens to a community of faith under the strong preaching of the word, a sense of repentance for sin, and a desire for a greater knowledge of the grace of Christ. And a renewal is, is that which happens on an individual basis. A heart is changed or, or strengthened and reinvigorated. And an awakening can be sparked by a revival. An awakening takes place in the greater community. The unsaved suddenly see and hear the good news of the gospel. There are two quotes. I'm going to end with these, which is interesting in terms of their time. On February 5th, Tim Keller published an article in the Atlantic magazine. Don't be impressed. It came online in one of my feeds. I don't read the Atlantic. It was just there. A lot of people throw it. Oh, I read the New Yorker. Oh, good for you. The Atlantic magazine. Keller wrote an article called American Christianity is Due for a Revival. And he, you know, he was uh, the pastor emeritus at Pres Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He says, for the first five years after my family and I started Redeemer in Manhattan, we saw seasons of remarkable spiritual revival and growth. Scores of people embraced faith who, must, uh, who most would have considered unlikely to be Christian converts. Looking back on that time, the most important reason for this is that we were offering God's grace as a unique path, different from either religious moralism or secular relativism. And going forward, a renewed Christian church must focus on this identity-altering, life-changing, community-forming message in the same way. So that's on February 5th. February 8th, the revival begins in earnest at Asbury. And Tom McCall, who is a professor of theology at Asbury Theological Seminary, which is right across the street, wrote this. This is an article that appeared in Christianity Today uh, on February 13th. Uh, this is the last line in his uh, article. He says, and he writes about the revival and so forth. He says, in previous revivals, there has always been fruit that has blessed both the church and society. For instance, even secular historians acknowledge that the Second Great Awakening was pivotal to bringing about the end of slavery in our country. Likewise, I look forward to seeing what fruit God will bring from such a revival in our generation. Peter wrote without any awareness of a need for revival in our nation. And we rejoice to see these things happening, particularly among young people. Later on, Peter in this letter will talk about judgment beginning with the household of God because that's where revival starts. It starts in the church where men and women under the authority and influence of the Holy Spirit begin to acknowledge the need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and in recognizing that knowledge become more and more aware of sin unconfessed and undealt with that has been waging war against our soul. And as we confess those sins, God begins a powerful move of his spirit, which may spread to the surrounding culture. Because when God's people repent, and he sends revival. He may be, in fact, preparing the surrounding culture for a spiritual awakening. Now, whether that happens or not, and we pray that it does, our mission remains the same. We are called to glorify God by living like holy people. We are called to worship him by practicing what Jesus preaches. We are called to show him the greatest respect by living like a holy priesthood. 
because holy people honor a holy God by living holy lives. You think about that. Let's pray. Father, we do not know what the future holds, and we pray that the, the revival that has begun and has spread to other uh, campuses and universities would spark a great awakening, uh, a sense, O oh Lord God, of our, our nation turning uh, to Christ with great fruit um, being born of it. But if not, O oh Lord God, remind us that our mission remains the same, to be faithful, to be true, to be honest, to be holy, for such you have made us. And such we are in Christ. We ask and acknowledge this in Jesus' name. Amen.